Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. Alright, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. I am your host, Dr. Kevin Kukaro, anesthesiologist, reformed pain physician, and podcaster. And today is going to be an interesting episode. First time I've done this. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple of listener questions and answer them here on the air. Okay. Now, for those of you who don't know, there is a sign-up sheet, or at least a sign-up form, at straightshothealth.com, where I have a little you know, opt-in place there. And that's for my newsletter where I can send you some information uh, as things come up and I have new videos, I can show those to you and let you know. But the other really important part about it, and the one that's really important for me, is I ask you questions. Okay, I'm asking you questions because as I said, when I started this, this podcast, the purpose of this is to provide you useful and actionable information, information that you can use to take control of your health, to make informed decisions, to make educated health decisions, to stay healthy and be well, all right, and really not to focus on too much of the, the bad things about medicine. And some of my earlier episodes, I got really frustrated with myself because I tended to rant quite a bit on the evils of healthcare and the frustrations that I had and less about providing useful information. And I really, really want to provide valuable, useful information to help people get well rather than focus on all the negative stuff, although it still bleeds out of me sometimes as I'm talking here. But anyway, when people sign up, one of the first things I do is I send them an uh, an email and I say, hey, thanks for signing up. What are your health concerns, though? Because when I t- hear those and I t- hear these these um, questions from you guys, it lets me know what you guys are worried about and what you want more information on. Then I can slip some other things on that maybe you don't know th- that you're not aware of yet because there's some stuff out there that I don't think a lot of people are aware of that I'm trying to share with you. But I want to make sure that these episodes provide you usefulness and that I am answering your questions that I'm providing the stuff that you want to do or want to hear and not necessarily just the stuff I want to talk about. Okay. If I just want to sit here and talk about only what I want to talk about, uh, there's no reason to have a podcast to be honest, because I could just listen to myself, I guess. So anyway, these listener questions are very, very important to me. And the first listener question is going to be from Katrina. And her question is, I love to hear more about exercise and movement. Um, you know, I appreciate you reaching out to your listeners. So anyway, Katrina, this is for you. And I like this because as we know from episode two, movement is one of the four fundamentals of health. Okay, remember there's only four principles that we really need to concentrate our attention on in order to stay healthy. Just four, all right? Uh, the first one, we need to avoid toxic stuff. That includes things like smoking, horrible for your health, you know, drugs, and it can be a prescription drugs as well, excessive alcohol use. It also includes toxic people and toxic situations. Uh, those also have a strong effect on your health in a bad way. Uh, The other one is to eat real food. And real food means plants, real plants means vegetables, uh, fruits, it means real meat, it means, you know, real milk, it means nothing with all this fillers and garbage and other stuff in there. Really focusing on plants and some meat and staying away from the highly processed foods, all the stuff that's wrapped in plastic, all the things with fancy labels on them, 
and all the chips and all that other stuff. Okay. Number three, stress, stress management, strong social networks. Very, very critical. We've been touching on that in the last couple of episodes, certainly in episode 19. That is a big one. And I will be also tell you that is a big focus for me. And we will be talking about that more in the future. And lastly, to move every day. Now, why is moving every day important? Well, you know, it's kind of funny, but every week, maybe even every day, it seems that there's a new study talking about how important exercise is and how vital it is for health. You know, I have a number of little health alerts that I have that being, you know, click off every day or every week. There's always a new study on exercise. So many that you start just going, God, didn't we already study this again and again and again? But they just seem to apply it to different things, to really old, to really young, to really sick, to not so sick, to this person and that person. And every single time it has seemed to come out that movement is good for you. In fact, I don't think I've ever really seen a study that said don't move. Instead, we have these studies that show that too much sitting is linked to certain types of cancer, that sitting too much and being inactive, not moving, can be as harmful as smoking, that towns that are built to help people walk and bike and move are healthier than those that don't. You know, there's neighborhoods that are unsafe to walk in. There's places that don't have bike paths. There's places that don't have safe walking environments. Those places are much sicker than other towns and cities that have that kind of environment. And when we look at aging, uh, which is a great topic in this day and age because so much many of us are getting older faster and there's a you know this whole wave of baby boomers that are starting to get into an uh, aging group still young but older than they were the more active that you are as you get older in general the healthier you are the better you age the you have you lose less muscle mass very important you have less disability as you get older that's pretty nice so you can actually enjoy your retirement, your brain shrinks less physically, your mind stays sharper, you fight off things like dementia, okay? And if you even have disability, if you already have some sort of medical condition or you have some other pain or, or problem, even in that situation, disability, exercise can help that. All right, so we all know movement, basically one of the best medicines out there, movement is medicine, but how much do we need to do? Well, if you go to the Centers of Disease Control website, it says that we should be doing something to make our heart pump, okay? Sort of what we call aerobic exercise, that our heart is pumping, pumping faster for two hours and 30 minutes each week. Now, if you're really aggressive and you have some shape already, you know, you've done some exercise for a while, you can really get that heart rate pumping and you can drop that. If you're doing intense aerobic exercise, you only need to do about an hour and 15 minutes or about half of that. But that's not all you should be doing. So in addition to that aerobic activity, you need to do something to actually build your muscles or keep the muscle strong, preferably growing a little bit, because when you're doing that heart pumping exercise by itself, unless you're doing very intense, what we call high intensity interval exercises, which we're not talking about here, it's not enough to actually build those muscles. And the Center for Disease Control say you should be doing some sort of muscle building activity roughly two days a week. Then you can use weights or resistant bands, such as those you know, big uh, rubber band looking things that have uh, actually a weight equivalent to them, five, 10 pounds or whatever. Or you can even do your own, you know, use your own body weight. In the old days, we didn't need any of this stuff. You did push-ups. You can just do body weight squats where you're just basically squatting down and standing up. But they advise that you do this weight building or muscle building activity 
um, vigorously enough until you can't do another repetition. So you do push-ups roughly until you can't push yourself up and again. Uh, you lift the weight until you can't lift that weight up. Uh, you use the resistance band until you can't stretch it anymore. Because getting to that point, that point where the muscle is completely fatigued or overloaded, uh, is necessary to basically get that muscle to grow. Now, the other pro- reason that they recommend only doing this roughly two days a week is because your muscles need to recover from that exercise when you've overloaded them. And the way they grow and recover is during periods of rest. Okay. So you have to have that built in rest period of time. And you only need to do it roughly two days a week to do this muscle activity in order to preserve your muscle weight. Uh, or if you do a little bit more to actually make them grow and get a little bit larger. All right. Now, a lot of people already know. Anyway, this is information that we have at doctor's office that we hand out in pamphlets, but we still have trouble with exercise. And for this podcast, again, I really want to talk about useful, actionable tips and information. And so when I say two hours and 30 minutes of heart pumping activity, that by itself isn't providing that much. It's still intimidating. The number itself is intimidating. But if I take that number and I reframe it and I say, you know, there's 168 hours every week and only 1.5% of those do we need to exercise, that doesn't sound so bad. 168 hours a week, only two and a half hours to exercise, that doesn't sound so bad. But we can make it even easier to approach than just reframing how much exercise you're doing. Now, there is a fantastic book. This is an old book from 1975. It's actually out of print. You might find it in the library. You do or you can find used copies of it on Amazon. But this book is called Total Fitness in 30 Minutes a Week by Dr. Lawrence Morehouse, who is a PhD um, exercise physiologist, worked with NASA and astronauts and all sorts of people. And what I love about this book is it was written almost 40 years ago, and the principles are virtually the same. Now, some of the language is a little bit dated, maybe some of the you know data points have changed slightly, but the overall principles are virtually the same and we're not really using them as much or we still have this obesity epidemic people are moving less than they ever have before but he advocates that you can really achieve some baseline fitness in 30 minutes a week okay and the overall prescription basically that he says for this is a number of things the first one to limber up okay limber up meaning to kind of stretch your body out not not doing those those old stretches that we did maybe in high school where you you know, having not done any exercise at all, you sit down and you start bending over your, your knee and stretching and trying to touch your toes. You actually don't want to do that. That's not very good for you. But you want to limber up by basically, you know, reaching out your arms, twisting your trunk and turning. So you're sort of doing this uh, movement from back one foot to the other foot, turning your waist and then kind of reaching forward with your arms and turning around and um, uh, twisting. And you're basically sort of moving your body all at once in these different kind of motions and limbering it up. That's one thing that you can be doing. The other thing roughly every day is you want to stand for two hours per day. Now, that's not you're just standing in one place for two hours per day, but you want to be up and out and active and doing something for two hours. Now, that includes walking to and from your car. That includes walking around your house. That includes walking around at your uh, uh, place of work. But you want to be standing at least two hours a day. He also advocates advocates lifting something heavy for five seconds. So that could be, I think he even talked about a typewriter in his book. So if you lift up a typewriter when they had typewriters, uh, a heavy stack of books and you're holding it for five seconds, that counts as a muscle activity for that day. Walking briskly for three minutes. Um, 
And that's really what he says. And then you're trying to burn in about 30 or 300 calories with exercise. And that's not really that much. And he has some great little tips in here. Like when you get up, like, like the, the, I love this routine he has. When you wake up in the morning, do a big yawn and stretch like a cat. You know, have you ever seen a cat stretch in the morning and they basically take their paws and they put them all the way apart. So their front paws are as far out as they can. The back paws are as far as they can be. And they're like, I don't know how they do it, but they certainly look like they've stretched out twice as long as they normally are. Um, but stretch like that in your bed before you wake up and do a big yawn at the same time. And then when you stand and get out of your bed, do another stretch. You can lift your arms up as high as you can and kind of stand up on your toes if you can. Hold that as long as you can. Um, and there's your stretching. And then he says, take a shower. But when you're in the shower or in the bath, you want to actually wash yourself vigorously. So you take this open, you scrub yourself. Like you're actually trying to get something off of you. Scrub, 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 scrub while you're in the shower. When you get out of the shower, do the same thing with towel. Dry yourself vigorously. So you're just, you know, being very brisk when you're when you're using the towel and, and being a little bit more active when you're doing it. If it's a flight of stairs, a choice between a flight of stairs and an elevator, so you're only going up one story, take the stairs, right? And then lastly, these, these last three principles here were don't lie down when you can sit, don't sit when you can stand, don't stand when you can move, all right? And so really is just sort of building this into a day-to-day -day routine that you're up moving around. Now, I have my own little couple of hints for this. And the first one is when you're at work. So if you're at work and you're in an environment where you're working in an office, drink lots of water. Now, I'm not saying to drink lots of water for kidneys or anything else like that. What I'm saying to drink lots of water for is the more you drink, the more you have to go to the bathroom. And if you do this, that makes you get up off of your desk to go to the bathroom. And if you drink a lot of water, as I used to do, you will start going, you're basically going to the bathroom every hour. You're getting up out of your chair, you're walking, and you're moving. Okay, another way you can do this if you don't want to drink all this water is just use an egg timer or a cell phone. Have one in your office. If you have an egg timer, I think it's a little bit useful, more useful than a cell phone. Um, but cell phones have this these built-in timers as well. You set it for 15 minutes, start working, and when it, when it goes off, get up. Get up, stand up, stretch briefly. Now, if you are in a... Um, you know, an, an environment where you're basically chained to your desk and they don't like you to move around. First thing I'm going to say is look for another job. And the second I'm going to say is you can still at least stand up um, briefly before sitting back down. You're trying to interrupt those long periods of sitting. You do not want to sit. You certainly don't want to really be sitting for longer than two hours at a time, preferably getting up every hour if possible. Now you can do things like talk on the phone while standing up moving around when you're on the phone. In this day and age with the cell phones that we have, you can walk all over the place with them. And it's fantastic as long as you're not in the grocery store annoying people. If you're in your house and you're just walking around, you can talk on the phone at the same time. I do that quite a bit. Um, I think sometimes my wife thinks I'm a little insane because I seem to pace all over the place, but it, it makes me, right? I should say it, I feel like I'm having a better conversation. Uh, I actually feel better when I'm talking to the person. Um, my brain seems to be operating quicker. I think faster when I'm walking around talking on the cell phone. And actually, there's a lot of information that says just the way we change our posture and movement and things like that it doesn't change and improve our mood. Uh, it's beyond the scope of this episode here. All right, uh, you know, going to lunch at work, walk. The stairs ones we already talked about. And then really just making sure you move with vigor. And then when you do have periods of relaxation, then to actually fully relax. We talked a little bit of relaxation in episode 19 again on stress. 
And then every day you just try to do a little bit more. So if you're taking the stairs and you decide this week you're going to take the stairs up one flight of stairs uh, or one one day one uh, one flight of stairs per day a week, then maybe after a week or two you're going to do it twice. You're going to take the stairs once and then you'll do it again later in the day. So twice in the day you're going to take a flight of stairs. But just trying to do a little bit more every day. And you have to do a little bit more in every day for the rest of your life. I used to tell some of my older patients that one of the most important things that we do or one of the most unfair things as we get older is the older that we are, the more important it is for us to move because our bodies are not nearly as resilient. They don't recover as well. They don't put on muscle um, as quickly as they did when they were younger and they lose it much faster. So for an adult uh, age over 65, and you're basically in a hospital bed, you're losing muscle mass at a rapid rate. Now, that's in a hospital, but just at home, if you were just sitting down all the time, you were going to be losing muscle acti- muscle, muscle uh, mass quite quickly, much quicker than most of us anticipate. And it, happens, it seems to happen after about the age of 35. Now, also with this, though, I'm going to put a little caveat here in the movement, is if you were just starting to do exercise, maybe you've had a long period of, of time when you weren't doing anything at all, that you really were just sitting in a chair and you're after talking to, or hearing me, it's maybe put it the last little push or maybe you already decided already and you're just listening to this episode for uh, a little bit additional advice or a push. You need to remember that when you start moving, moving again, when you've got older, is you were going to be sore okay soreness is not bad does not mean you're hurt all right so if you just started walking then the next day or you just started doing some muscle building activity and your arms kind of are sore um you know that muscular soreness that is not a bad thing it is just your muscles telling you that they have not been used in a long time back off just a little bit but keep going so that because if you don't uh, keep going when you move again, it's going to be just or as or or worse. You have to just recognize that soreness is not harm. All right. Now, my next question here is from Kurt. And his question is, as an osteopath, you have the, had a broad spectrum of education and holistic and natural approaches to healthcare. Then your MD colleagues, have you found any effective nutritional supplementation components to central sensitivity, central sensitivity syndrome? That's something for chronic pain, you know, uh, talking about pain as a, a central brain-based component um, or foods that should be restricted. Uh, have you personally found any manual medicine that's kind of the manipulation techniques that has truly risen over others for central sensitivity syndrome? Okay, so quite a bit in there, more than a few questions. Now, number one I'm going to talk about briefly is the osteopath or DO versus MD component. And I'm going to probably upset a lot of people here. Osteopaths and allopaths, which are the MDs, the DOs and the MDs, were much, much more different 100 years ago. When osteopathy was started as a school, MDs at that time were using things like, you know, basically poisons, arsenic and things as, as therapies. The, the drugs that they had were worse than the ones that we have now. People were getting poisoned, essentially. And so osteopathy really came in an age when medical care was lacking, all right? And they did view very much more that there was, you know, the body can heal itself and things. Now, over the ages, though, or over the years, as medicine has evolved and this, um, you know, osteopaths became fully licensed, or at least there was some bitter, 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 bitter battles in the early 20th century over this um, between MDs and DOs. 
but eventually everybody got licensure and now osteo, you know, DOs and MDs have essentially the same privileges everywhere they go, at least in the United States. They can prescribe drugs, do surgeries, et cetera. The differences have fallen away significantly. So while I was in school, we did learn how to do manipulation, osteopathic manipulative medicine, but we had to learn um, from the same textbooks. We still were in basically the same disease care model as everybody else. When you get into the hospitals, they are certainly the same when it comes to their approaches toward health. And what I would say is if you are approaching things from a DO as a, or an MD kind of viewpoint, look at the physician and not the initials, okay? Because there are a number, a number of MD physicians out there who are much more holistic, much more natural in their approach, or I don't even know if that's the word natural, much more wellness-based in their approach than a lot of osteopaths are. There are some osteopaths that are much more holistic, much more uh, wellness-based in their approach to healthcare than MDs, but you cannot use the initials to tell who they are. You have to look at the practices. You have to look at their background. Um, you know, there's, there's a, uh, an institution called the uh, Functional Medicine, which I am not as familiar with, but having looked at their website quite a bit, uh, they seem to be much more into uh, food, nutrition, healthy uh, eating, things geared towards making people healthy. Uh, and they have both MDs and DOs. So look at the physician first, not the initials, okay? Um, because I don't want anybody to limit themselves uh, just to think that they have to either go to see an MD or they all, I just have to see a DO. Look at the physician first, much more important. And in this day and age, the education between, you know, a DO and MD when it comes to holistic and natural approaches to health is not that different, at least in my experience. All right. Now, have you found any effective nutritional supplements, components to central sensitivity syndromes, hard for me to say that word, or foods that should be restricted. So we're talking more about chronic pain now and nutrients or food supplements or, you know, uh, uh, vitamins and things for, for chronic pain. And what I told Kurt was, you know, I, I haven't really seen any. I, I, there was some that I looked at. The data was from uh, mostly animal studies. Certainly you couldn't really uh, extrapolate it to, to humans very well. But my concern when it comes to a lot of these nutritional supplements is besides, you know, there's not a lot of great evidence, is I don't necessarily think it's as important to, I don't think this, these supplements are as important as what the belief in what the supplement does. All right. Now, what I'm basically talking about is when you believe something is going to do something, that has powerful effects. If I tell you that this pill is going to help you and you have a lot of trust in me as a doctor and you have a lot of desire and want that this pill is going to do something for you, then that belief, that belief that you have and in some ways that I have that that, bill is, that pill is going to be beneficial for you has significant effects on your body, okay? And there's some a number of studies on this. I'm hoping to do an episode on it in the future uh, because it is it's unbelievable. I mean, it really is interesting, and it's in the science behind it. A lot of these studies are coming out of Harvard, uh, Dr. Kapchuk there, that, uh, and it's really about placebo, and I don't even like to use the word placebo because of the negative connotations with placebo, and we should probably get rid of it. You know, Dr. Herbert Benson, 
um, who wrote the Relaxation Revolution, great book, you know, discovered the relaxation response we talked about in, in uh, episode 19. He changed the word too. He doesn't like that word, and he used to, he was calling it remembered wellness because placebo should not be frowned upon. Placebo not, should not be viewed as this horrible, awful thing that somehow it doesn't have any effect. Placebo effects are profound, and, it, and a lot of it is based in belief. So when we people start talking about controlling your diet, I mean, up and beyond the point of eating real food, you know, elimination diets, sure. But when we start talking about, you know, adding in pills or, or too much extra, extra, extra of this pill and extra, extra of this pill or, you know, doctor, whoever's magic supplement, I, I am just not convinced that it's necessarily that supplement is the belief in the person taking that pill that it's going to help them. All right. Now, I don't have a big problem with that as long as those beliefs aren't limiting, all right? I would rather people be aware of something called the placebo effect or the power of expectation and belief when it comes to medicine and understand that that has a powerful role uh, than to only view that pill as being effective, you know? Um, because when we start using that, we, we, we repl- we're using that belief, then we start believing what happens if that pill goes away, what happens if the price of that pill goes up? Then people start thinking, well, that they're, you know, that they need or require that pill to stay healthy, and that is disempowering, which is the absolute opposite of what I want people to have when it comes to their health. Now, the other thing about this is when people start actually taking control of their diet um, and using these other types of, um, you know, diets above and beyond real food, there's a strong belief component as well. The level of perceived control that people have, and perceived control is the the amount of, um, you know, the belief that you have that you control your environment, that you are are that you cause the things around you to change, and that you have influences over your health. And that perceived control, which is known as a resiliency factor, basically, uh, um, which we haven't talked about yet on Straight Shot Health as well, but we will. Uh, improves stress physiology okay so we talked about in episode 19 that the way that stress affects our bodies is through basically three different mechanisms the perception of the stressor whether they see it as a threat or a challenge the recovery period you know giving ourselves those time to relax and recover from it and lastly our ability to cope and deal with stressors well perceived control affects how we view stressors so if you have this high level of perceived control, if you strongly believe in whatever pill you're taking, and that concludes pharmaceuticals and prescription drugs, by the way, but if you strongly believe that they're going to have an effect, that changes the way that stress works in your body. Now, we do know that chronic stress causes inflammation, causes immune dysfunction, um, both of which inflammation and problems with your immune system have uh, a special, you know, special effects when you look at like your gut and your bowels and um, how you digest foods. So when we look at belief, again, belief in these pills, it may be more the belief that is beneficial than the actual pill or supplement is doing any good. Now, when it comes to manual medicine, because that was the last part of this long question here, manual medicine, manipulation, you know, things that chiropractors do, some things that, um, uh, you know, massage therapists may do, some of the things that Uh, osteopaths do we don't do it as much anymore because i'm busy prescribing pills i guess but manual medicine sets up the same type of uh, concerns i have with belief 
Now, I don't necessarily see anything that shows one as a technique is superior to other. In fact, a lot of the evidence is is lacking. It seems to be good for some acute conditions, you know, short-term pain, people who have a muscle spasm. But what I don't like with manual medicine is I don't want to set up a conditioning belief. Okay, this belief again, sort of like the pill, that it is a fix for a person's pain or problem. And you're taking away control. You're, you're removing that control, that situation to whoever's doing the manipulation. You know, now if, if you're doing the manipulation, it's great. People love it. People love having their hand, you know, manipulation feels good. They sing praises. Your appointments are full. But what about long-term results? And what I mean by that, I'm going to use a specific example from my own uh, past here. But f- manipulation in many ways is sort of like epidural steroid injections. Now, epidural steroid injections are often used for back pain. Very, very limited evidence to do so. All right, very limited evidence to do so. And there is basically no long-term evidence that says they're any good after six months of pain. But people are having them all the time. And I'm sure someone may be listening to this saying, oh, epidurals are, I'm having my three epidurals a year or whatever, and they're keeping me from moving. And we'll tell you the evidence, the long-term evidence, though, does not necessarily show that. They show that epidurals can help acute pain temporarily. They work very well in labor because we're using a local anesthetic or numbing medicine and you're taking away that nociception or that, that nerve firing. But when I, what began to upset with me with the epidurals when I was doing them was that any time then that that patient had a pain again in the future, they expected, and in many times they believed that they needed another injection, Okay. Um, after that pain maybe went away with injection, uh, a lot of them didn't do the exercise. A lot of people didn't do stretching. And the, the belief that that pain meant something that maybe it didn't never went away. And so instead of encouraging them or instead of encouraging them to, to help themselves to uh, learn these other different modalities with p- chronic pain, some of which I've touched on in the past, I was encouraging them with these therapies to run to their doctor, me, as soon as they fit, fell a twitch of pain. And it was quite upsetting, okay? And, and I can do a little quick rant here as well. Is the fact that epidural steroid injections don't have any long-term evidence supporting their use, but they were paid more, really, up until this year when Medicare finally started slashing how much they were getting paid for them, than a lot of office, office visits. And that these epidural steroid injections are encouraging or creating these, these harmful health beliefs it really kind of tells you how screwed up our healthcare system is. All right. So that was a long way to answer that question. Um, and hopefully that made sense for both of them. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Katrina. Appreciate your questions. I know other people have similar questions to these, which is why I picked these um, to let you guys know about them. Again, if you uh, have questions for me, go to straightshothealth.com. You'll find a sign-in sheet right there. Uh, once you sign, um, you know, opt into that, you know, as I said, I send you a quick email asking you what your concerns are with health or healthcare, And I use those, as I said, to kind of build episodes to answer, to make this useful for you. All right. Well, thank you all once again. Another week has gone by. I can't believe it. We are now whew, almost halfway done with the year. And until next time, though, be welcome.